Nehemiah chapter 4. Our sermon title this morning is Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. The title to this sermon does not come from the song by the Dixie Chicks, although I like them, they're Texans from Dallas. The song that they sing where they say praise the Lord and pass the ammunition is a song called Sin Wagon, which glorifies drunkenness and promiscuity and actually mocks the grace of God. The title to the sermon doesn't come from their song. It actually comes from an American patriotic song written as a response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. The song describes a chaplain who was with some soldiers who were attacked from, under attack from the enemy. The chaplain is asked to say a prayer for the men who are engaged in firing at the oncoming planes. The chaplain puts down his Bible, mans one of the ship's guns, and begins firing back, saying, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Well, that wasn't exactly what happened, but it makes for great folklore. Howell Forgey, the chaplain who said the phrase, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, described it this way. Well, I was stationed aboard the USS New Orleans and we were tied up at the 1010 dock in Pearl Harbor when we were attacked again. We were having a turbine lifted and all of our electrical power wasn't on. And so when we went to lift the ammunition by the hoist, we had to form lines of men, form a bucket brigade. And we began to carry the ammunition up through the quarterdeck into the gurneys. And I stood there and directed some of the boys down the port side and some down the starboard side. And as they were getting a little tired, I just happened to say, Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. That's all there was to it. Well, it's a great phrase. It makes for a great song title and it makes for a great sermon title. Today we need to hear God's word to us and celebrate the freedom that we have in the gospel and why and how we need to fight as the church, as the people of God, as the city of God. Today, we're going to see out of Nehemiah 4 that there is a balance to the phrase, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Incidentally, Oliver Cromwell's phrase to his army was very similar. He said, trust in God and keep your gunpowder dry. When enemies attack God's people, when there is opposition to the gospel, opposition to our mission as a church, what are we to do? When opposition comes to the city of God, the church, the people of God, what do we do? Do we praise the Lord and pass the ammunition? Do we trust in God and keep our gunpowder dry? Nehemiah 4 will help us answer those questions. Our big idea today is this. Always pray. Always protect. Always pray. Always protect. What I mean is that the church is to always remain in a state of prayer and protection. I'll unpack that for you in Nehemiah 4. But notice that it doesn't solve the tension between praise the Lord and pass the ammunition and trust in God and keep your gunpowder dry. It leaves them intact because that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, let me say before we dive into the text that you will not always pray for the people in your life or for yourself. And you will not always protect the people in your life or yourself. You will fail because you are a sinner. So at the outset of this sermon, you need a gospel promise to root you. And it is this, Jesus Christ always prays for you. 
he always prays for his bride, the church. The book of Hebrews says several times that he makes intercession for us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says he lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is the one who really always prays, and he is the one who always protects us. So we need to have that gospel promise at the front of our sermon before we need to hear the challenge to always pray and always protect. Look at verses 1 through 5 out of Nehemiah chapter 4 and hear the word of the Lord. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Well, we saw last week in Nehemiah chapter 3, things were pretty quiet. They had settled down since chapter 2. There was no opposition mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3, no drama. There was just a list of servants who knew that God sees and remembers all of our puny acts of love and devotion offered to and for him. That's what we saw last week. But guess who is back now in Nehemiah chapter 4? Sanballat and Tobiah. Two of the three stooges, as I call them. Two of the three stooges that we saw in chapter two. Now, I don't know what happened to the third stooge, Chunky. Do you remember him? Geshem from chapter two. His name means chunky or stocky or bulky. Chunky is nowhere to be found in Nehemiah chapter four. Maybe he's at the gym working out. I don't know. But we have two of the three stooges back. And they're angrier than they were in chapter 2, and this time they're back with an army, the army of Samaria. Sanballat is not just mad. The text actually says in verse 1 that he was angry and greatly enraged, and he brought the army of Samaria with him. See, there's anger, and now there's this whole army because the people of God are rebuilding the city walls that surround Jerusalem. Now, probably what lay at the root of Sanballat's frustration is that he knew that Nehemiah and the Jews had permission from King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. They had his permission to rebuild the city walls. Sanballat knew this. So his plan is to try and threaten and scare the Jews in hope that they will quit rebuilding the city walls. He can't really use this army without getting in trouble from Artaxerxes. All that Sanballat can do is flex his muscles. And we get to eavesdrop on the angry army's conversation in verses two through three. Imagine this great army is gathered around Jerusalem, kind of like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Do you remember that scene? Picture Sanballat with like half of his face painted blue, like Mel Gibson or William Wallace, and hear his battle cry to the Sumerian army. What are these feeble dudes doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? They can't take away our freedom. Now that was a terrible, 
I think I sounded, I think I was channeling Martin Lloyd-Jones. That was more of a Welsh accent, I think. Anyway, I do that to keep you awake. And then Tobiah, his friend, the Larry of the Three Stooges, he jumps in and he says, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, I can't help but think at this point, Ooh, what a cut down, Tobiah. If a fox goes up on their wall, then the wall will fall down. Are these words supposed to scare the Jews, Tobiah? I mean, come on, Tobiah, you can do better than this. Is this all you've got? If a fox goes up on it, he will tear it down. I mean, surely Tobiah could come up with a better cut down than that. Tobiah's remark, actually, was a pretty decent cut down according to ancient Near Eastern culture and cut downs. Because scholars estimate that the city walls surrounding Jerusalem would have been about nine feet thick. So Tobiah's remark really is a cut down, even though it doesn't seem like it for our ears. By saying that a fox could tear down their walls, Tobiah actually pulled off a pretty decent cut down. Well, here's what we must be reminded of once again as we look at this interaction. Sanballat and Tobiah and the army of Samaria remind us that there will always be opposition to the gospel. When the people of God get serious about being the city of God, opposition will come. When the world hears that we are passionate about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and about extending his kingdom in this world and in our own city, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, then they will hate us. Jesus promised us that in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. And that's exactly how it worked in Nehemiah's day. Look again at verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now, notice how Nehemiah responds to Sanballat's anger. Look at verses 4 through 5, where Nehemiah just, he just jumps into this prayer as he's writing his book. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Contrast what Sanballat heard in verse 1 with what Nehemiah asks God to hear in verse 4. Sanballat heard that the Jews were rebuilding the walls again, but Nehemiah wants Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, to hear His prayer. You see, what matters most is not what our opposition hears about what we believe as the church, what we are on mission to do. What what matters is not what they hear. What matters is what God hears from our mouths to him. So please let me say that again. What matters most is not what our opposition hears about us and what we believe What matters most is what our God hears. And that's why Nehemiah prays. He doesn't get caught up in a game of, I know you are, but what am I? You get none of that with Nehemiah here. He doesn't get caught up in in a whole bunch of yo mama jokes here. No, instead he prays to his heavenly father. Nehemiah knows that the people of God, the city of God, must 
always pray and always protect. But what kind of prayer does Nehemiah pray? There's several aspects to his prayer. First, it's a prayer for justice and judgment against sin. Secondly, it's a prayer asking God to bring judgment and justice. Nehemiah is leaving the vengeance in God's hands, not his. Just like what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20. Third, it is God's work that the people are doing. It's God's work that Nehemiah is involved in. They are not building their own kingdom. So when Sanballat and Tobiah and others mock Nehemiah and they mock the Jews... They are, in fact, mocking God. They are dishonoring Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And when we experience opposition and hatred for being Christians, remember, ultimately, they're not mocking us. They're mocking Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. Fourth, it's not personal enemies that Nehemiah is praying against here. He just met Sanballat and Tobiah. He's only been there for a couple of days. Sanballat and Tobiah were not his classmates that bullied him in second grade. And so he's like, now he's like, finally, I get you back. These guys were not his neighbors who played music at midnight, kept him awake. They're not annoying co-workers who worked in the cubicle next to him. So this is not personal for Nehemiah. He just wants to see justice. So he prays what scholars call an imprecatory prayer, asking God to deal with his enemies. Of course, Jesus will command us to love and pray for our closest enemies, our personal enemies. But we also see people in scripture like David praying these kinds of imprecatory prayers. And I think the principle for praying these imprecatory prayers is that the closer the person is to you, And the more personal it gets, the more you love and don't pray this way. In other words, don't pray an imprecatory prayer for your mother-in-law. Unless she's a terrorist. And I'd say, yeah, pray that she gets caught. In essence, Nehemiah is praying for God's enemies to be stopped. They aren't Nehemiah's personal enemies or his critics. They're God's enemies. Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., wisely reminds us, when you respond to your critics too often, they begin to set your agenda. Nehemiah knew this. So he responded to criticism and opposition by praying. But one prayer did not change everything. The rebuilding and the opposition continued. Nehemiah knew that the Israelites needed to do something besides just praying. So look at verses 6 through 9. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So the people of God continue building the wall and they have some success. Verse 6 says that they completed it halfway up. But if you've been reading Ezra and Nehemiah up to this point, then you know how this story is going. 
When Sanballat and Tobiah hear that the rebuilding of the wall is going well, they return, but this time with the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astrodites. So this is about to get serious. The Samaritans had come from the north, the Arabs from the south, the Ammonites lived to the east of Jerusalem, and the Ashdodites came from the west. So Jerusalem was completely surrounded by their enemies now, by four armies. It's like four gangs show up with Sanballat and Tobiah. Picture them in their leather jackets, rolling in on their, their Harley Davidson, wearing bandanas and you know, covered in tattoos. And the text says that they arrive very angry. And they plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. These four armies have Jerusalem surrounded. And they're just waiting for Michael Buffer to say, let's get ready to rumble. Do you know Michael Buffer? Maybe you know his brother, Bruce Buffer, who does something similar in the UFC because he says, it's time. That's what these four armies are waiting for. They're waiting for someone to show up and say, give us the cue. We want to take the people of God out. And how do Nehemiah and company respond? Verse nine says, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. They do both. They pray and they protect. They trust the Lord and they keep their gunpowder dry. And they praise the Lord and they pass the ammunition. They know that the city of God, the people of God, the church is called to always pray, always protect. As Ralph Davis says, note that the theology of verse 9 avoids both the errors of self-reliance and of laziness or quietude. It avoids both the sins of panic and of paralysis. Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah protects. Nehemiah sought the Lord and he set leaders on the wall. Nehemiah loaded up some prayers, and he loaded his guns. But as you might expect, the opposition continued. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Well, Twitter was abuzz this day. The hashtag Jerusalem surrounded was trending on Twitter. So we get three different groups responding to the rebuilding of the city walls. Two of the groups are from fellow Israelites and one from their enemies, from this four-nation army. This shows us that there are always threats from within the church 
as well as threats from without. So let's look at the first threat that came from within the church. Threat number one came from the newspapers that were circulating in Judah. It's found in verse 10. It says, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In other words, these scared Jews told Nehemiah, we can't go on rebuilding. There's just too much rubble. We're weak. We're exhausted. We can't do it. We're going to throw in the towel. This came from fellow Israelites who were scared and discouraged by the threats of the four-nation army that was surrounding Jerusalem. They saw their enemies and they wanted to quit. There are always people within the church that want to throw in the towel and keep us from our mission. But there's another threat that came from Nehemiah's enemies. Threat number two was from the four-nation army as they texted one another. We get to read one of the texts in verse 11. They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. In other words, this four-nation army that had Jerusalem surrounded told the ringleaders Sanballat and Tobiah, we'll surprise them. And they won't see our attack coming. And then we'll kill them and we'll put an end to this nonsense. This threat came from without, from their enemies, from the four-nation army. Their plan was to surprise the Jews and to kill them all. Are we surprised that there are threats outside the church? Jesus told us that we would experience persecution and hatred. So we must be ready to protect the unity and purity of the church from the world. Threat number three came from those living outside Jerusalem. It's found in verse 12. It says, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. In other words, these suburbanite Jews told Nehemiah, leave the job undone and move back to the countryside around Jerusalem. There are new neighborhoods going up with community pools and playgrounds. It's quiet out here. It's peaceful. Leave the city and come to the burbs. This came from the Jews who were living out in the country, outside Jerusalem, who repeatedly heard the threats of the opposition. They feared a war. They feared death. So they're discouraged and trying to shut down the rebuilding project. So they say to Nehemiah and company, 10 times, you must return to us. I picture them saying it in Hebrew 10 times real fast. This is where that whole saying, say this 10 times real fast, that's where this comes from. You know, like when someone comes up and says, say toy boat 10 times real fast. Have you ever tried to do that? You can't do it. Well, that game started here in Nehemiah chapter four. And people think the Old Testament is boring. That's what they're doing here. 10 times real fast. They said, you must return to us. You must return to us. Well, what are these tongue twister disciples doing here? At its core, they're trying to hinder the work of God. They're trying to get Nehemiah and company to settle down and stop being so passionate about the city of God. And churches are not immune to these kind of people either. Mark Driscoll said, it's amazing. In moments of fear, we could totally lose sight of God. We could lose sight of our mission, 
our calling to make his name great. We could just cower in fear. For some of you, all it takes is one criticism, one poor glance, one offhand remark, one negative word, and you crumble. The church must always deal with people who get distracted from their mission and start focusing on other things. And it manifests itself in a number of ways. From those who like to complain and gossip and slander to those who don't want to reach out to certain people because of race or economic status. These people want to or they don't realize that they are actually hindering the work of God when they do these things. Threats like this come from inside a church and they can keep a church from its mission. We're here as a church to protect doctrine, to protect the gospel, to protect the gospel from those antinomian people who would say, we don't need God's law anymore. Or to protect those licentious people who say, all we have is grace and we can live any way we want to. We're here to protect the gospel and say, the gospel is, is that God's grace not only forgives you of the bad things you do, it transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. Grace forgives and grace transforms. And there are always people who want to fall on either side of that. We're here to protect the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're called to protect doctrine, gospel purity as a church because threats against that come up from inside the church. So what do you do when you encounter people like this in conversations? Always pray, always Protect. You stop the malicious gossiper and the slanderer in mid-sentence and you say, let's pray for the person you're slandering. And then you pray for the person who's doing the slandering. You stop the incessant complainer in mid-sentence and you say, let's stop and give thanks to the Lord for the evidence of grace that we have seen here at Grace. You stop anyone who's bucking against the leadership of this church and you say, what does God's word say? Submit to your leaders for they're watching over your souls as those who must give account. You stop anyone who's trying to get us distracted from igniting a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. You stop the person who perverts the gospel and makes it about us and not about Jesus. You stop the person that says, it's about what you do for Jesus that matters. And you say, no, no, it's about what Jesus has done for us. You stop the person that wants to tweak the Trinity and you say, no, no. You stop the person who wants to change the definition of marriage. You stop them and pray. You pray and protect. You protect the unity of this church when the slanderers and the gossipers and the complainers start spewing forth their vitriol and hatred. You, individually, and me, we are called to protect this church. We're called to protect this church from the slanderers, the malicious gossips, and the cantankerous church curmudgeons. Don't be one of those three, by the way especially the cantankerous church curmudgeon. 
always pray, always protect, always seek to be, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And how does Nehemiah respond to the, say this, 10 times fast tongue twister game? He puts people in the open spaces and the low places of the wall and he passes out the ammunition. He starts handing out swords and shields and crossbows and then he directs their attention to the Lord. Look at verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah redirects their attention to the character of God, the character of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. I love this. He reminds them of who the Lord is. He is great and awesome. The word awesome here is the same Hebrew word we saw in chapter one. It's saying that Yahweh is the great and fearful God. That's who Nehemiah is calling on Israel to remember. And then he says, protect your families and your homes. Grab your guns and have faith. Grab your guns and trust God. Grab your guns and trust God. And people think the Old Testament is boring. If I was preaching in Texas, I would have got an amen, y'all, from that. Grab your guns and trust God. Imagine the new members class where Nehemiah is the pastor. Picture him saying to the new members, here's a copy of our statement of faith, a new member's packet, a copy of our church covenant. Oh, and don't forget to grab a spear and a sword. And there's a crossbow if you prefer that. A perfect marriage of our big idea. Always pray, always protect. Nehemiah knew this, so he says, remember the Lord. What kind of people would we be if in the midst of opposition, in the midst of talking to other Christians as they shared with us their struggles, their hardships, their pain, what kind of people would be if we simply said, remember the Lord? What if each time we counseled someone, we said, remember the Lord? What if we started writing on people's wall on Facebook, remember the Lord? Some of you do this very well, by the way. Put that on your Facebook wall today. Why not put remember the Lord on your Facebook wall today? Well, enough about your Facebook wall. Let's return to Jerusalem's wall because that's where Nehemiah and company returned. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. Us there, our God will fight for us. Well, soon it was actually all over Facebook because the Israelites heard about this plan to attack them and God thwarted the enemy's plan. 
So they returned to work, but they returned to work differently this day. Imagine Joe Israelite leaving home and his wife doesn't yell at him as he leaves. Honey, don't forget your lunch. No, now it's, honey, don't forget your sword. Honey, don't forget your spear. So the Israelites are working and they keep their weapons on their person. They're packing ancient Near Eastern style here with swords and spears. They stayed on guard. The walls went around the city, so they told everyone to listen for the trumpet. And if any section of the wall was attacked, they were to blow their trumpets, and then everyone would rush to that area and fight the enemy. But notice that two times we see God's sovereignty at work here. In verse 15, it says that God thwarted the plans of the enemy, so they returned working on the wall. Verse 20 says that they trusted in the fact that God would fight for them, but they still rallied together. A perfect marriage of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. A perfect balance of praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. A perfect balance of trust the Lord and keep your gunpowder dry. And they continue this very maxim in verses 21 to 23. Look at verse 21. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They trusted the Lord, but they did what they could do. They set up watchmen and security guards who made the rounds at night made the rounds during the day, and then they didn't put on their pajamas when they went to bed. They slept in their clothes. They didn't put their gun under their mattress. They kept it right at their side. But they also rested in the theology of verse 20. Our God will fight for us. They knew that they must always pray, always protect As one commentator said, relying upon God is not incompatible with the taking of sensible precautions. Relying upon God is not incompatible with the taking of sensible precautions. And that's why we do live scan background checks here on anyone who wants to work with kids or the teenagers. That's protection. We just don't just pray here at Grace. We don't just say, God, please protect the children. No, we do our part. We protect by doing background checks on anyone that wants to work with kids or teenagers. We pray and protect here at Grace. So if you teach a Sunday school class, I'm encouraging you to show up 15 minutes early so that you can be in the room when people start dropping their kids off early because we don't want somebody dropping their kids off and there's a stranger in the room and some visitor just thinks, this guy must be the teacher, take my kid. We pray and protect. We're called to protection. And that's why we do background searches on everyone who wants to work with kids. It's protection. We do our part. We trust in God. We pray and protect. As we close, let's take a minute and pray and ask God where we can pray and protect this church or where we can pray and protect our families. Maybe you need to think about how the world is creeping into your home. Maybe you need to be time-oriented and show up early to your classes so you can help protect the kids of this church. Maybe you've been gossiping or slandering here at Grace. Or maybe you don't do those things, but you do nothing to stop them.
Maybe you do nothing to stop gossip when you hear it. Or maybe you haven't bought into our mission to reach our city with the gospel. Let's protect this church. Let's be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's stay on mission to ignite a passion in every person on the central coast to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Let's stay busy making disciple-making disciples. Wherever you go at grace, whomever you interact with, make a commitment by God's grace, by his strength, to always pray, always protect. And you will fail. You will not do it perfectly because you're a sinner. You're weak. But remember the Lord. Remember Jesus. He always prays for us. He always protects us. Remember Psalm 124 verse 8, which was our call to worship this morning. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, God, which is a challenge and a reminder to us to do our part. You are sovereign. You don't need us, but you use means. Help us to do our part to protect this church, to pray for this church. Help us to do our part, Father, even though we're going to fail, even though we're going to be weak, even though we're not going to always do it, help us to remember that your son Jesus lives to make intercession for us. And when we fail to pray, he takes prayer requests to you on our behalf because he lives to do this. And he lives to protect us. And ultimately, Father, he has protected us from your wrath because we were born rebels and lawbreakers. And you have imputed us and credited us with his righteousness and we stand protected from your anger and wrath forever. May that gospel truth motivate us to do our part for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.